this uh, Sunday and last, we were talking about how to relate to difficult people, and we talked about how easy it is for, for us to think about how we need to change that person. Oh, that person needs to change, or that person. And God grabs our finger, he turns it around, he points it squarely at our own face and at our own heart, and he says, okay, let me change you first, and I'll change how you're relating to these difficult people, the crazy makers in our lives, and then you just let me come up with the results. I'll help you out with how you're going to deal with that person. Last week, I introduced five different types of conflict people, people who can be the crazy makers in our lives. And then we talked about the first two steps that we can take, those daily practices to get in the habit of doing certain things. And today, we're going to cover the next three so that we have a total of five. The first two steps that we talked about were, first of all, be the adult in the room. This is a hard one, and as I mentioned, each step gets more difficult. And this first one is difficult, especially when there are emotionally charged people <laughs> that you're dealing with. So to be the adult in the room means that we get to practice some of that fruit of the Spirit, like patience and gentleness and kindness, which means that even though we may be feeling some stuff under the surface, you don't want to act like that. To be the adult in the room, it means you're thinking, okay, how can I show this person that I'm in emotional control even though they might not be? That's being the adult in the room. Then second, the second step is forgive even if they don't ask for forgiveness. You might be waiting for an apology. Might not come. So what do we do? Well, we forgive them anyway because forgiveness is what frees us from carrying around that weight of hurt because the longer we hold on to it, the more damaging it becomes for us, even perhaps long after they have forgotten about whatever it was that hurt us. So be the adult in the room and forgive. Remember that we're in this lifelong learning process, and each time I get into a, something like this where I'm trying to help instruct how we can become more emotionally mature, spiritually mature, I think, who am I to be relating this stuff to other people because I haven't mastered this stuff yet? There are times when I still really struggle with this stuff, but that's the irony about discipleship. All of us imperfect people who have been covered by God's grace are in that walk together, and if one person is farther along in that walk than this person, then you can still help guide them down the same path. But I think it's good for us to know that nobody in the body of Christ should claim that they've gotten this all completely mapped out and that they're good at everything. In fact, if that's the kind of person that is saying, no, I've got it all figured out, I would distance myself from that kind of teacher. Because even Paul the Apostle, the guy that we're learning so much from in the New Testament, had said, no, 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 I don't have it all figured out yet either. That's why we've got Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. So this is an idea for all of us to continue to help ourselves along by putting ourselves under the Spirit's care so that He's doing the transforming work in our lives and so that we can encourage each other to keep doing that as well. So just before we move on to steps three through five, let me share this Bible verse and a story that I read just this week that sums up point two, and then I can move on to points three, four, and five. It was too good a story not to use. Okay, here's the verse. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not do wrong to repay a wrong, and do not insult to repay an insult, but repay with a blessing because you yourselves were called to do this so that you might receive a blessing. In other words, if we're going to want God's blessing in our life, we want to repay not evil for evil, but repay evil with a blessing. 
here's the story. There's this 85-year-old guy. He was in line in his car at a fast food restaurant, which shall go unnamed, but you can probably figure out which one it is. <laughs> and he gave his order, but the lady behind him thought that apparently he wasn't moving up quickly enough. You know those people? Sometimes they grew up on the East Coast and they're used to a New York minute, and every time that the light turns green or something's done, they're laying on their horn immediately. You know the types. And so this lady behind him was doing that. She was using her horn a lot to convey her annoyance. And then he looked in the mirror, and she could mouth some things that he said were probably not the kind of things you'd want to repeat in Sunday school. And then he gave his order. He pulled up to the first window where you pay, and he said has the lady behind me placed her order yet? And she said, yes, she just did, because there was a car between him and the window. And he said, okay, well, I'd like to pay for her order as well. And we're thinking, oh, looks like he's going to repay a blessing for the evil that he experienced. So then the lady pulls up. He looks in his mirror. She looks shocked because the cashier is telling her something, and she mouths the words, thank you, to this guy. So then the guy gets up to the window in front of him, and he takes both his food and her food and drives off. <laughs> Which means she would have to go all the way around to the beginning of the line again. Now, when I first heard that story, I was about to get teary-eyed and to think, oh, what a sweet way for us to be able to do things the way God would have us to do it. But all of a sudden, it took a turn, and it went into the how not to behave file, because he took the low road. He was not the mature person in that situation. He was retaliating. He wanted to get even. And I, honestly, now, didn't you kind of at, at first think of yourself, that's pretty good. <laughs> we kind of tend to rejoice when we see people doing things like that. And that's exactly the point. We don't want to get into the habit of rejoicing when other people retaliate and get their two cents in. Because that means that we're starting to look into the dark side of our character, which wants to retaliate, and we're looking for good comebacks. I heard of one pastor that was given a book, the extensive library, and it was 121 great comebacks. And they were so funny and so snide. He said, I read it cover to cover, but I can't use any of them because I'm a pastor. <laughs> and we don't want to get in the habit of looking at those retaliatory comments or the ways that we can get even with somebody. That's exactly what we're not supposed to do if we're going to receive God's blessing on the other end. It was looking good for a minute, but he took it the other way. Don't we want to receive God's blessings? Man, I do. So that's why Peter in that verse tells us that if we're going to do that, then repay an insult with a blessing and not with another insult. Okay, let's move to number three, step number three in what we can do in handling the crazy makers in our lives. This one is refuse to gossip. Uh, you know what it's like. Somebody, the crazy maker in your life, does the thing they're so good at because they're making people crazy. What's the first thing you want to do when you get outside that area and you know you can call somebody? You're going to call that friend and you're going to give a full report in detail and it's going to be gory details because you just can't wait to share because you've got some dirt, you've got some juicy tidbit. That's what we do. We're human. That's what we tend to want to do. However, what we're realizing is that sometimes what that really does is just throw gas on the fire because it can inflame an already difficult and contentious relationship with lots of conflict. It's just going to escalate the conflict. It's not going to solve it. 
especially if you're sharing that dirt with somebody who's not a part of the problem and who's also not a part of the solution. Now, let me also say, it's one thing to vent to somebody in that way without seeking to be redemptive. It's another to seek good, healthy counsel from a mature friend who's a believer so that you can plan your strategy on how not to do it the wrong way. Seeking good counsel is also a scriptural principle. So that doesn't mean we're supposed to just keep our lips zipped and say nothing, but it means that if we're going to seek counsel, let's do it so that we can learn how to be redemptive in how we're dealing with that person. When we continue to rat out the crazy maker in our life without taking a breath to process how we can analyze our part in this and to say, what can I do in our next interaction to further this along in a positive direction so I can move this forward, but positively, when we continue to just rat them out without taking that breath, then we're just going to escalate it. Proverbs 17.9 says this, The one who forgives an offense seeks love, but whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. And you and I both know that we have seen this when somebody rats out somebody else and we're gossiping about them. Other people start to take sides in that conflict. And before you know it, tribes are there or teams and it becomes sort of a team politic. And some people decide that they're going to cut off their relationship with you over something that they heard from somebody else, even though it might not have been the original source and it might not even be true. I see it happen, unfortunately, all too often. So that can be very dangerous. It can separate close friends because gossip does that sort of thing. Here's the definition that we need to operate from, and I like this definition. I've adopted it. Gossip happens when you share damaging information with somebody who is neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. That's the big thing. Matthew 18 talks about that. We should go directly to the person and try to iron things out, if at all possible. Then we give them a second chance. We bring somebody with us, maybe two or three, and we try to work it out there. And if not, then sometimes it becomes escalating to the point that we need to bring it to a larger body. But instead, so many people opt to do the one thing, and they just retaliate with a great visceral comeback, and it doesn't help. Doesn't or don't gossip does not mean stuff your feelings and don't share what's going on with anybody. Because when we do that, when we isolate ourselves, when we bury the feelings, because the feelings are real, then that just means we're putting that on a high boil on the back burner, and pretty soon we're going to boil over one of these days. And we don't want to do that. So here's a good thing to share or not to share. This is a good question. These are questions that come right out of Scripture from Ephesians 4.29 that help us ask, should I share this with somebody else or should I not? When you talk, do not say harmful things, but say what people need, words that will help others become stronger. Then what you say will do good to those who listen to you. And that can mean even when you're speaking to somebody for wise counsel. Is what I'm going to share with my wise counsel friend going to help the person that I'm talking about or is it going to harm them? Now, if the answer is no to those questions, then it should be pretty obvious. You shouldn't share. Wait until you've checked your motives and hold your tongue, bite your tongue until you can say, okay, I think I'm ready to share something with my trusted, wise counsel friend so I can ask them to help me analyze what I can do differently to help move this crazy maker forward in a positive way. The best way to avoid damaging gossip is to seek wise counsel including the fact that you need people who can speak truth into your life. 
Somebody who could maybe even say, well, when you said that, as you were debriefing what you said to that person, I can see why that escalated them, because that would have escalated me too. That was pre pretty harsh. Maybe you need to tone that down the next time you speak to them. We need people in our lives who can be honest with us that way. Okay, here's number four, step number four. Refuse to play by the crazy maker's rules. In other words, take the high road. Don't do what the guy in the drive-thru did. <laughs> take the high road. Don't play by their rules. Don't stoop to the level of their crazy. <laughs> Don't let their emotionally charged behavior suck you into playing their game. There are people, as I've mentioned, who just really enjoy a good debate. They like to argue because it makes them feel like, oh, I'm connecting with somebody. It may be that they just never got the opportunity as a child to connect in any other way, and the only way that they could get attention was to get bad attention, and so they argued. But at least they got your attention. I don't know why. We don't know people's motives. It's hard to read into people's motives, but some people just love to argue. And when that happens, usually they're basing what they're saying on an emotion, not on an intellectually reasoned argument. People operate out of emotion, and then they find reasons to justify what they're doing or saying. So they'll say, oh, I have a reason for that. Well, no, actually, you've just got a rationalization gland, and it's kicking off real big time because you're rationalizing this behavior by saying you're reasoned, but it's all emotion-driven. And it's impossible to... Have you ever tried to reason with a three-year-old who's throwing a temper tantrum? You can't do it. You just have to be the adult in the room. I remember one time when... My wife was supposed to get up and read some scripture as a part of something we were doing in a church. And our daughter started acting up, our firstborn, when she was very young. She was in first grade at that time. And she just started throwing a fit. She just went berserk, started crying and kicking and stuff. So Joy finished what she was supposed to do. And then she just got Katie and picked her up and smiled at everybody and walked out through the back door as if to say, y'all pray for us, okay? She had to be the adult in the room because you can't reason with somebody who's unreasonable. And when somebody's emotions are pegging the meter, we can't reason with them. We can just be the adult in the room. You know who was a master at not playing the other person's game? Jesus. He was so good at that. Let me give you a good example. It's found in Matthew 22. This is where the Pharisees kept trying to ask Jesus questions so they could trap him so that they could either find something to charge him with or so they could get him into a meaningless debate so that it would trip him up ultimately. But he knew that. He knew what was going on. It says in Matthew 22, 18 and 19, Jesus knew what they were up to. He knew that they were up to no good. He said, why are you playing these games with me? Why are you trying to trap me? He didn't fall for their games. He refused to play by their rules. And I love that about him. We can learn a lot from that. People who have based their prejudices on emotion cannot be logically reasoned with. Now, some of us who tend to be a little logical might think, oh, I'm going to have a great logical argument, and I'm going to convince them why what they're doing is harmful, and they'll thank me. They'll say, oh, thank you for showing me the error of my ways. Your argument was so cogent, and it made so much sense to me. I feel so much better, and now I'm going to stop this behavior. Does that ever work? No, because it's emotion-driven. It's not logical. And we can't allow ourselves to fall for their game and play their game and get sucked into playing that game with them. Some people are just going to make up their mind. They just don't like us all that much. 
for whatever reasons. And there's emotion behind that. Maybe some stuff that happened in their own life and you remind them of somebody, I don't know. But whenever that happens, we can't stoop to that. We can't play their games. And so we need to just take the high road, be mature, keep, uh, especially when we get to number five, you're gonna see that we need to keep telling the truth. We don't jettison the truth, but we gotta be the mature adult in the room with those people. All right, before we tackle number five, which is a really good one, it's a doozy. Uh, let me recap the four steps that we've covered so far. Last week, the first two, and then just these two. Uh, be the adult in the room. Even though you may be feeling offended on the inside, try not to show it. Exercise patience. Exercise self-control. Show them that you're there to help them uh, and that you don't want to harm them. And if you're a safe place, sometimes that will de-escalate. But be the adult in the room. Second, forgive the offender even if they don't apologize first. And even if you've done something and you've, you asked for an apology because you can say, well, I'm going to own my part. I lost my cool. I'm sorry about that. If they say, yeah, you sure did. <laughs> and they're not really reciprocating. They're not saying, and I apologize for my part too. They may just dump it all on you. Don't get angry about it. Just forgive them. Let it go. Don't hang on to that hurt because the longer you hang on to it, the more it's going to harm yourself. And then thirdly, refuse to gossip. It's okay to seek wise counsel from somebody who's going to help you analyze what you can do differently to help redeem the situation. But don't go share something with somebody who's not a part of the problem, nor are they part of the solution. And then number four, refuse to play by their rules. Don't get sucked into playing their game with them. And then here's the tough one. And the reason it's tough is because we Christians have been raised to be nice. We Christians have been raised not to rock the boat. We're, we think of, I jokingly said at times when Christ would do something like turning over the money changers' temples, uh, temple, the money changers' tables in the temple, and we would say, oh, well, that's not very Christ-like. Well, yeah, that was extremely Christ-like because he's Jesus and we're not, and there was good reason for it when you understand what was going on. But refusing to cave in means that sometimes we have to stand for the truth even though the other person is still not going to budge. But we can't give in. We cannot compromise on the truth, but we can still be the adult in the room. We can refuse to gossip. We can forgive that person. We can refuse to play by their rules, and yet we can still stand on the truth. Jesus did it perfectly. He's so good at that. So when a crazy maker is demanding something that's not right, it's clearly not good, it's not helpful, it's maybe unethical, it might be immoral, it might even be illegal, it's just plain wrong, then we have to stand on the truth. We can be the adult in the room, but we cannot give in to their demands. It may be tempting to cave in for a couple of different reasons, but we can't do that. Let me give you some examples. Uh, years ago, when I was an associate pastor in a church in Phoenix while I was going to college, I was doing some work, getting ready for the uh, Sunday service, getting the songs together, and the phone rang in the church office. And it was this guy who had a relative that was regularly attending our church, though he did not regularly attend. And he said, um, I would like to make a contribution for your church because I really appreciate the work you're doing. And I said, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you for that. He said, and I wonder if you could help me out. And I said, okay, how, how can I do that? And he said, I would like for you to send me a blank letterhead with your stationery. And that way, I'll give a contribution to you, but I'll save you the trouble. You don't have to send me a receipt. I'll just fill in the amount that I'm going to contribute to you. 
And I thought, okay, um, no. <laughs> the answer is no, because we have a, a standard way that we do that for good reason. And he was very kind. He, he was a really good spokesperson. He said all the right things in just the right tone. But the longer he talked, the more I could sell, tell that he wasn't coming right out and saying it. But reading between the lines, he was saying, here's the deal, buddy. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. I'll make a contribution to your church, but I get to write in the amount, win-win. I get to put in an amount that I said I gave to the IRS. That's going to help me out, but your church is going to be on the receiving end of this thing. We both come out great, don't we? That's what he was not saying, but I could tell that was a part of what he was implying. And so, rather than becoming upset about that, I tried to be the adult in the room, and I said, well, sir, thank you so much for your desire to give to our ministry. I appreciate it very much. The way we're going to have to do that, though, because of our procedure is you're going to need to mail us a check. We had no such thing as the Internet back then. This is back when we brought our Bibles on stone tablets, you know. And, and I said, but if you'll mail us that check, then we'll deposit it. That's great. It'll go toward whatever it is you want to go to. If it's a general budget, we'll, we'll deposit that. And then at the end of the year, the fiscal year, our financial secretary will mail you a contribution receipt with the amount that you've given us, and you can use that for your tax purposes. But thanks so much for your call. We look forward to hearing from you. Bye-bye. You see how you can stand your ground and still be kind? You don't have to lose your cool, but I wasn't about to play by his rules either. Um, another lady, this was at a previous church, she was an EGR. You know what an EGR is? Extra grace required. <laughs> she was an interesting person. God bless her. You know, when we always say, God bless her, you know, God bless her. She's just so sweet. And she was a challenge at times. And she came up to Joy, my wife, after the church service one Sunday. She said, I uh, have this pattern to make dolls. She sews and things. And she says, and I'm going to be selling this as a cottage industry, selling this pattern to different people, like at uh, garage sales and flea markets and things like that. And, uh, but this is kind of messy, and I, would I don't type. Could you type this up for me so I can have the directions? And Joy said, oh, well, let me take a look at it. And she took this badly handwritten out stuff, and there was a copyright statement at the bottom of the page. And she goes, oh, is this your pattern? She goes, well, no. She goes, oh, well, there's a, a copyright notice at the bottom of the page. She goes, oh, I know. I want you to leave that off when you type up the, the directions. And Joy said very kindly, well, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that because the copyright is there because this is somebody else's property. It's their intellectual property, and if you sell it and it's a copyright, then that's an infringement, which means we're breaking the law. And if I type it up so that you can do that, then I'm breaking the law, and I, I just can't do that. So I'm afraid I can't help you with this particular project. It's a great, it's a great uh, doll, and I'm sure it's really pretty, but uh, I, I won't be able to help you. Now, sometimes we say things and we just have to say it and then zip our lips and wait for them to either absorb the truth and deal with it or reject the truth. But we're done. And she was done at the end of that phrase. You know, I can not do this for you, but thank you for asking me. Now, joy could have caved. It's easy to cave in if we think, oh, I'm going to ruin this relationship. And we could even spin it in a positive way to say, what if she stops coming to church? We'll never have the opportunity to pour into her life with the gospel truth and with more of the word. But it's still compromising what she knew was wrong, and we can't compromise on that. So she had to take the chance that this lady might not ever come to church. She kept coming to church, by the way, after that. 
But she took the chance of ruining a relationship because she took the high road. Uh, sometimes when we do that, we're not sure if somebody's going to opt out of the relationship or not. Let me give you an example of what I mean by opt out. Uh, we have a nephew. He's the director of an interfaith shelter in another city in Michigan. And we took a tour of their shelter. They do a great work. They provide housing, temporary housing, for people who are getting on their feet again. It could be because they just fell on hard times. It could be because they've gotten some trouble with the law on occasion. It could be because a spouse has been abusive and they need to move away for a time. And then this is a temporary get-on-your-feet kind of situation. But they have, as you can imagine, some rules that the residents need to live by. And they're good because the rules are there so that they can make more successful decisions with their lives. And they have caseworkers who will work with them. They're very caring. They're really compassionate. But when they do the intake for these folks, they go through the list of rules and they say, can you understand why we would need rules like this? And they always say, yes, I understand that. It's good for us. It's good for the rest of the residents. It helps you make the right decisions so that you don't fall back into this behavior, which you've told me about. All these things are for good. Now, if you choose to opt out of this contract, then you break the rules. That's your choice. But when you do that, you know that you're opting out not only of the contract, but that means you're opting out of this bed. We no longer have a bed for you in the shelter. Uh, are, you, are, you, are you catching what I'm putting down? You know? And usually they'll say, yes, of course. But one of the caseworkers said to us, of course, sometimes we have to confront them when they break the rules. But your nephew, my boss, is really good about saying that because he reminds them he's the adult in the room, he doesn't get in their face. He says, I'm really sorry that you have opted out. And he uses the same language that they used in the intake so that they know what he's talking about. He'll say, you told us and you signed this contract that you would agree to this and that if you chose not to, you're opting out not only of this contract, but that means you're giving away your bed and you can't stay here. And I'm very sorry that you've chosen that. He words that in such a way that he says, I'm sorry that you chose that. You see, that's what we're doing when we're sticking to the truth and we're not caving in because we don't have to compromise on truth. But we also don't have to play their game or play by their rules. This is why Christ is such a great example because he did that so well with the people. He always stuck to the truth, but he refused to play their games and he never caved. Here's something that we Christians sometimes forget about. Forgiveness can happen immediately. Christ did it immediately, even to the people who were casting lots for his clothing at the foot of the cross while he was being crucified, and yet trust is earned and it can take time. Forgiveness and trust are two very different things, very different things. We tend to meld those two together, and they don't go together. Trust is earned and it takes time. Let me give you an example. Uh, sometimes there might be a husband, he's an alcoholic, he goes out, he's drinking with his buddies, he gets drunk, he's one of the angry drunks. When he comes home, he's abusive to his family, and the wife says, you need to leave, and so he leaves for a time, but then he comes back very quickly, maybe the next day, and he says, can I come back? I'm really sorry, I'm so sorry. I am so completely sorry that you need to know that I'm a changed man, I'm not going to do this again. Can she forgive him? Yes. Absolutely. She can forgive him because she's going to let go of that hurt. Can she trust him? No. No. 
Trust has to be earned over time. And she would say, yes, honey, I forgive you. I'm glad you're learning something. But we're going to need to see over time a demonstration that you have indeed changed so that you're not going to harm us the way we have been harmed previously. And that's okay. She's sticking by the truth. She's not caving. She's not playing that game. The Bible says in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. So we know we need to forgive. But then here's this balancing principle. It comes in Proverbs 14, 22. It shows that trust is earned. Proverbs 14, 22 in the Good News translation says, you will earn the trust and respect of others if you work for good. If you work for evil, you're making a mistake. So both can happen at the same time, and we tend to combine them, and we don't need to. So we need to separate forgiveness and trust in our minds. Forgiveness does not mean, well, I'm going to continue to allow you to verbally assault me or worse, maybe physically harm me with this behavior. I'm not going to allow it. Forgiveness means I'm letting go of my desire to hurt you back, and now, because I'm sticking to my guns on the truth, I need to see that there is some difference in your life before I trust you again. Here's some biblical examples that show why we're not supposed to cave into the crazy makers in our lives. When somebody tries to press you or manipulate you, maybe they have power and they're going to lord that power over you and try to get you to do something that you know is wrong, it's unethical or it's illegal, what do you do? Years ago, Joy worked for somebody uh, as I was going to college. Um, and he said, I can't sign this particular paper, but I need you to sign it. I authorize you to sign this paper. And she looked at the paper, and she thought, well, I think this feels wrong to me. It feels like if I sign that, I take responsibility for the decision that's made on a financial matter, and that seems, I'm just very uncomfortable with that. It turns out that it looked like he was trying to get some additional scholarship money for his own daughter instead of going through the normal channels. And she said, respectfully, I can't do that. I just don't feel right about that. Now, she was risking losing her job. He had control. He had power. He could have said, okay, well, you're fired. Or he could have found some reason to fire her later. Gratefully, he didn't. But she chose to say, I'm just totally uncomfortable with this, and I'm afraid I just can't do that. And she stood her ground. So whoever knows the right thing to do, says James 4.17, and fails to do it for him, or in her case, for her, it's sin. And she knew that. And she chose to do the right thing anyway because she knew it would be sin not to. For her to say, well, yeah, I guess I might lose my job over this, so okay, I'll just do this and hope that there's no consequence for it. No, she did the right thing. What about, here's another one that happens quite a bit. What about you're an innocent bystander and somebody starts saying bad things about somebody that you know, somebody who's a believer, for example? What do you do about that? Do you speak up? Do you pretend like you didn't hear it and you just go your other way? What do you do? This happened to me one time years ago as well. Some guy told me about this guy. He didn't realize that I knew the guy really well. He had done some work for him in his house and said, boy, these guys got a lot of money. Sure would be nice if they could pass that money along and maybe raise the rates of the people that, he, that they're getting to do some of the work they've got going on for him. And I said, well, you might not know as much as I know. And if you knew this guy, you would know that he's worked extremely hard and he's been really good steward with his money to be able to get the kind of money they have. 
And because he's a very humble guy and he's doing things scripturally, he's not there to get a pat on the back, but he and his family have helped abundantly more numbers of people than you can imagine. They give to missions. They've done all kinds of things, but they don't do it for a pat on the back, so they do it anonymously. And so I would think that probably whatever he was paying you is probably a very fair wage for the amount that, that you're, of the work that you were doing. He's a fair guy. And I just think that this kind of gossip is really dangerous because you're painting a picture that's not accurate about somebody. And I think that you just need to be aware of that. I didn't want to do that because I hate conflict. But I felt like I needed to speak up because I knew it would be wrong to, to go away nodding my head, maybe tacitly agreeing by him thinking that I agreed with him about that guy when I didn't. I had to speak up. Romans 14, 16 says, Do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. It's a part of our God-given wisdom to speak up against something that we see that's wrong. And that means that we can be both loving and truthful at the same time. These are the balancing principles that guide all five of these steps. Romans 12, 14, ask God to bless everyone who mistreats you. And you could write above that, put a little carrot in there and write above it. God, ask God to bless everyone who makes you crazy. <laughs> ask him to bless them and not to curse them. Why is that important? Because if we want God to redeem them, we're going to be praying for them which means we're going to be analyzing how we come across to them so that they can ultimately be redeemed. Everything we do should be looked through the filter of prayer as we want the very best for that person. And that's hard to do with a crazy maker. It's hard to want the best for them, but we should. Asking God to bless those who mistreat us is a real biblical definition of love, in fact. That's probably the best definition of real biblical love. Asking God to bless those people who actually mistreat us. It's easy to love people who are lovable, like you <laughs> or like me. Why wouldn't we want to love people who are just like us? It's easy to love those folks, but it's Christ-like to love those people who are just driving us nuts because of their crazy-making behavior. Look at this passage again from Paul's writing, Romans 12. Don't mistreat somebody who has mistreated you, but try to earn the respect of others. And do your best to live at peace with everybody. He knows that even when we do our best, sometimes peace is not going to be the result. There are times when somebody's going to opt out. They're going to either walk away or they're going to quit. Or sometimes if there's too much power going on in the situation you're in, you need to be the one to walk away because there's no end in sight. It's all just guns and lawyers at that point then sometimes you need to leave and go somewhere else because you recognize that nothing good is going to come from that. Jesus did that. It's okay for us to hold on to the truth and to stay in long enough until we realize that no good is going to come from this. We can be Christ-like and still do that. Here's the bottom line. Do not let evil defeat you, but defeat evil with good. I typoed this when I was writing it out this week, and I didn't catch it until this morning, and it said, do let evil defeat you. And I'm really glad that I caught that because that could have been really, really bad. We're not supposed to let evil defeat us. Do not let evil defeat you, but defeat evil with good. Instead of fighting fire with fire, we're supposed to let the Holy Spirit light the kind of fire in us that allows us to overcome evil with good. And then Proverbs 16, 7 
What happens when you apply these principles? God smiles at you. You receive God's blessing. When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. And I've seen this work. I've seen it happen, and I know it can. That's what I pray will happen in your life. As a pastor who loves you, I'm here to tell you, I hope that God smiles on your lives and that he's allowing you to live at peace, even with your enemies. It can happen, and I'm praying that will happen. Let's pray together. Father, I would really desire that we could live at peace as far as is humanly possible with even the crazy makers in our lives. And I'm grateful that you've given us some real scriptural counsel about how we can behave to help make that happen. And so now I'm praying because I'm a fellow human being who still struggles with these things. I'm praying that I and others with me will continue to practice these principles in our daily lives so that it'll make a difference with the crazy makers in our lives. Thanks for doing that. Thank you for being so good to us that you give us all the instruction we need to make our lives so much richer and better, including rubbing off on other people and helping their life ultimately become richer and better as well. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.